I'm Kate Northrup. And I'm Mike Watts. And we're partners in life, love, and business. Welcome to the Kate and Mike Show, where we share insights and interviews on entrepreneurship, relationships, parenting, self-actualization, and making a life, not just a living. Welcome to the Kate and Mike Show. This is Mike. And this is Kate. So we just wrapped up an episode with, I think, my dream guest, like the person I have wanted to have on the podcast the most since we ever started. Of course, I had never asked her before, but, but when I did, she did now, right? Yeah, I asked yeah. her now and, and she said yes. So we have today Glennon Doyle, the author of Untamed, which has been the number one New York Times bestseller for the last five weeks, I think, uh, at yes. the time of this That's recording. Right. And she's also the author of Love Warrior, which is an Oprah's book club selection and the New York Times bestseller Carry On Warrior. I love Glennon. I really do. I love the way she writes and I love the way she talks and I love the way she uses words because I just love words so much. And I love the way she puts them together to describe being human. And this conversation was wonderful. We should also mention that she's the founder and the president of Together Rising. It's an all women led nonprofit organization that's revolutionized grassroots philanthropy and they've raised over 25 million for women families and children in crisis and we are monthly contributors to mm -hmm. together rising she is glennon is married to abby wambach and she lives with her and three their three children in florida, florida. so yeah on this episode we talked about religion we talked about losing yourself we talked about what it feels like when you publicly go out on a limb and either screw up or don't screw up and the difference between those two when you're being criticized and then what to do about when you feel like you're going to die from being publicly criticized in on whatever scale that might be happening. And yeah, we talked about, oh my God, so great telling us at the beginning that parenting is going to get easier. Yeah. When our kids nice. aren't little anymore. Oh my yeah. God. That was great. Yeah. We cover. And then, and then at the very end we wrapped up, she shared three incredible things about basically finding yourself again when you've lost yourself. And all of us have lost ourselves at one moment or another, whether it's, you know, with substances or a relationship or just, you know, tootling down a path for a while that you're like, oops, where did I go? So super, super beautiful conversation. And we also found out at the very beginning something funny about Glennon that I just did not know. And, and we, there was a musical interlude related to it. Anything you want to add, honey? No. Hopefully everything, everyone's doing well out there in the land of quarantine and staying safe during this time. We're sending you a lot of love. And definitely, definitely, definitely... Get yourself a copy of Untamed. We let our neighbor borrow our copy after we had both written it. And my neighbor and I both agree that during this time, we have not been in a place where we can like watch anything depressing or negative or particularly like intense or read anything like that. And instead, we've needed to be reading and watching and listening to things that are entertaining and or healing and untamed is both of those things. So definitely get yourself a copy. Enjoy the conversation. Hi, Glennon. Hi, how are you? Good. How are you? I'm so good. Welcome to the Kate and Mike show. Well, thanks for having me. We're so psyched to have you. Hopefully no children will awake and come down the stairs during and if they do and if they do that will be perfect that will be perfect <laughs> so what <laughs> nothing go ahead okay just it's not perfect it's not perfect far from perfect i get it i get bedtime is bedtime and we do not want to see them after i get that no, yeah. we're we're it's done. It's the time we're where you, so put, cooked. you put them in bed and you're like, yes, the evening is mine. And oh. 20 minutes later, it's like, mama. mama nope. Nope. Like, no. I, oh, this day I remember those days. What time they, do your kids go to bed? 
Well, now, sister, they are old. Like, we're in a different phase. We're just in quarantine. Like, we're just all roommates who are ignoring each other, basically. They are 17, 14, and almost 12. No, just turned 12. Yeah, so we're in a completely different phase. They go to bed often after we do. Yes, I go to bed at 9.30. I can't stay up late. I can't do it. So my youngest one still wants to be tucked in. So I tuck her in, but my oldest one is a junior in high school and he often is working on school stuff till midnight. It's a whole different world, but you guys, it's so much better. Really? I'm so sorry. Having little kids, having Thank little kids, saying this. you guys, it's so terrible. It's, it's so awful. <laughs> I, I watched your morning meeting. That's what yeah. Called, right? Yeah. The other day. And you were just like, yeah, I was, you know, I left my job and then I took care of three kids. And they would have been better raised on the street. Yeah, it was just, yeah. it was, it is, un, when I look back on it, I just, I don't know how we do it. Raising small children, yes, there are little slices of heaven just packed inside long swaths of hell. Okay, it's just, and I mean, you make it through and they're so damn cute, but I'm telling you that it gets better. I mean, these people make their own sandwiches. They just do all the things. Because so many people stop me on the street, and I find this incredibly irritating. And they say, you know, just wait until they're teenagers. And they say, just enjoy every minute. And I'm like, you don't even remember what this was like. They don't. Otherwise, you wouldn't say this to me. That's correct. It's, that's an awful thing to say, first of all. Like, you should never tell anyone that they should enjoy anything, okay? That's just, it's no. But also, I really so far enjoy having teenagers. I love like, hearing that. I love it. I think that maybe everybody has kind of a zone that they maybe are great, are like they're in the zone for that time. I don't think anybody, no honest people that I know, like nail it all the way through, right? It's usually like you suck at babyhood and you're okay at toddlerhood or whatever. You have your zone. And I think this middle zone of young teen to where we are is a good one. Like they have their little personalities and it's, it's mentally challenging in some ways because their problems are more mental issues you have to work out with them, like emotional stuff. But for me, I'd rather do that than the physicality of the early days. Like just... The nonstop morning to night, constant needs, constant doing, never sitting down. I mean, Kate and Mike, I sit down all day. All day I sit. It sounds like heaven. I had a moment. Kate's sister came over today, right? And so that was a blessing. She took the girl. Kate was at the office. I was here. Then the girls, the Penelope and Ruby just wanted to play with Annie, Kate's sister. And so they were with her for, I don't know, couple hours and I'm in the house by myself reading. I was listening to your interview with Brene Brown getting ready for tonight. And I'm, and then I, uh, the interview's over. I'm sitting on the couch and I'm like looking around and been like, this is so bizarre. Like no one's here mm-hmm. and it's dead silent. <laughs> and it was so awkward like just to be in complete silence and nobody's asking me for anything. I really didn't know what to do with myself. I know. So you read the Motley Crue autobiography or biography. Yeah. I went from Glennon Untamed nice. to Destruction. So is it, is it a biography of the whole band or is it like Vince oh, yeah, Neil and to Tommy Lee? Like, is it, because I was a serious metalhead. Oh, really? So, really? Yes, it has a girl, giant yes. bottle of Jack Daniel on the on Of the course front. it does. Yes. It's by Neil Strauss. You know, okay. You know, okay. Of yeah. course. Yes, so yes, yes. So it flows like amazing. Um, okay. It is the complete opposite of what you're talking about. <laughs> and uh, yeah, We need balance. So that's good. Yes. yes. It's about the early, it's, it was written 20, I think 20 years ago. Uh-huh. And yeah, I think it was 20 years ago when they finally published it. And yeah, it's just complete destruction of human Debauchery. Yeah, yeah, just debauchery. Good times. Those were the bad old days. Uh, yes, yes. You were a metalhead. Oh, I used, to, uh, I used to watch Headbangers Ball. I don't mm-hmm. know if you remember. This is a special MTV show. Yeah. I was absolutely certain that I was going to marry Sebastian Bach from Skid Row. I remember you through all the sleepless nights, <laughs> through every endless day. Yes. 
And if not him, then I would have also married Jamie Lane. Abby just walked in and she's staring at me with a horrific look on her face. Yeah, Jamie Lane, heaven isn't too far away. That would be a band called Warrant. I don't know if you remember. I remember. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. She's my chair pet. Yes. Oh, that, I mean, I know that song. Yeah. You just caught me with just that. (laughs) You guys. Yeah, I'm not kidding. I had to prove it. I had to prove that I was that was that was really good evidence. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Okay. So I do I do want to ask something regarding your children. Is that okay? Yeah. Oh, you have something. Excuse me. Yes. The Motley Crew is actually perhaps you have a better segue than I do. No, 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 no. This this is no. You're gonna go right. You're gonna talk about it. But they actually were very untamed. Ah, yes. Yes. Look at you. Now, segue, go. (laughs) For sure, they were. I am asking this question. I'm always asking this question for myself, but some questions are more for our listeners, but this one's pretty much for me. (laughs) I'm curious as a mother, (laughs) and so your kids, like, since you talk about them, how much do you have the conversations about like, I'm going to tell this story. Is that okay with you? Do you want to read it before it goes in the book? Because I have a mother who's an author um, Mm -hmm. and my stories are in her books and Um, it's very weird as an adult and was as a child as well to meet people who were like, I feel like I know you. And I was like, but I don't know you. Yes. You don't know me. <laughs> yes. You know my mom's written version of version, me. Yeah, so I'm just right. curious. Like, and then now I have children and then I tell stories about them in my writing. So yeah. I'm just curious, yep. like, how do you think about that and how has it evolved? Well, it's changed completely yeah. since they've gotten older. When they were little, honestly, Kate, I just didn't care. Whatever. Like, the least you can do is just let me use you as content. Like, you're ruining my life. Dear five years old. This is it. This is what we're doing. But then when they get older, the issues that they have are not like little kids. The issues are universal. Okay. Unless your kids, unless your your family has some special situations, usually the problems are universal. But then when they get older, their actual little personality, their problems and their challenges and their little dreams, all the, all the things that make them who they are. And then everything changes in terms of Tish's friends will bust me all the time. Like if I put something on Instagram, I haven't talked to her about, they'll be like, they'll tell her because they all follow me. (laughs) So, so eventually, uh, but you know, I mean, I don't know. I just have a, when it comes to myself, it's very tricky to be a person who writes about your life and your relationships and your family and always be dealing with that Venn diagram. Because to me, it's a Venn diagram. It's like, here's my experience and here's your experience, which is just yours and mine, which is just mine. But then there's this Venn diagram of where my experience overlaps with your experience. And that's where the negotiation is, right? Like 85% of my kids' lives, nobody knows about, nobody ever will know about until they, and, and, and if they decide to share it. But that little Venn diagram is where we negotiate because those parts are also my experience. Mm-hmm. I know. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. Yeah. yeah. It's tricky. And, and, you know, there are purists about all of it. Like some people will tell you that it's all, it's, it's all your experience. There is no Venn diagram. Some people will tell you that no matter what, you should not mention your children. I don't know. I don't believe, whenever I hear extremes of anything, it always seems too easy. You know, I feel like the answer is it would be nice in life if there were always black and white rules like that. But usually it's a daily negotiation and just feeling what's right for you and your family. I think it would be sad if nobody talked about parenting. Oh, it would be family so much lonelier. Than it already oh, is, which so it can hard. be. Yes. But like I, when in our, in my first year of motherhood, I sort of lost my mind at the beginning, well, the whole year, but especially at the beginning and I wasn't sleeping and I eventually moved down at when Penelope was six months old, I eventually moved down to the guest room and Mike slept upstairs with her and he would just bring me, bring her to me to nurse in the middle of the night. Cause I was like hanging on by a thread. And I read at that time by myself down there, carry on warrior mm. and just like <laughs> sobbed my mm. brains out alone down there, just like so tired. But I, of course I couldn't stop reading your book. <laughs> 
<laughs> and, um, um, and like, it was just, it's so helpful to just, you know, Hey, you're not alone. Like, yep. This lady, I don't know. It was hard for her too, in a totally different way, but also really hard. It's just so validating. And that helps, right? Oh, and, helps and some so of much. it's like so much of what women of our lives are our relationships. So part of me is very suspicious of all of that share shaming because it's also just a way to shut women up about what's important to us. You know, if women aren't allowed to write about their families and their relationships, you know, our lives are just as important as anyone else's and we should be able to share and we should be able to connect that way. I will tell you that parenting teens, while a better experience for me, hands down, is lonelier Mm. because it's unshareable, Mm. right? Because the challenges are so much more personal and so much more private. It's not like, I can't sleep, I can't eat, everything sucks, my kids, it's not like (laughs) (laughs) right? The poop, right, exactly. It's not that anymore. It's like, I can't sleep because of this thing that's precious to my kid and I can't share it and it's not mine to share. So it does get a little lonelier. Nobody's solved that problem yet. Yeah, that's really, I can imagine, hard when you don't have a partner that you can really share with when you're raising teens. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 That would be very challenging. Mm-hmm. And I think that like, so there's this part in your book in Untamed, obviously. Well, not obviously. I could be talking about whatever I want, but. Congratulations, by the way. <laughs> I know. Thank seriously. you. Thank not you. It's amazing. It's yeah. Awesome. The book it really is. So is. Good. No, thank you. It's like, yeah, it's really good. Oh my God, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. I was going back through all my highlights and I was like, I just want to read it again. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, thank and you. I never read books again, but I'm a very forward moving person. Right, same. Same. <laughs> right? The best book is the best, the book I just read. The best <laughs> philosophy is the last one that someone told me. So that's it that's it i'm joy from nemo like i, I know everything today yes and then it's fun. so good so you talk about though like you know made me think about what you were saying about lonelyhood and parenting teens and you talk about the ache and i think that in this moment you know we're recording this whenever you're listening i don't know but we're recording this during this global quarantine pandemic situation mm-hmm. And for some of us, we're busier than ever and have more going on than ever because we've got the kids in the homeschool and the work and, you know, all of it. But there Mm -hmm. is like this, and obviously everyone's experiencing a very different version. Mm -hmm. But there is this, like, I noticed for me, like, if I were a car, I was, you know, in fourth or fifth gear. And Mm -hmm. then, like, as the weeks went on, I slowly switched into first gear. And then in first gear, and then I also got sick right at the beginning of it. And, mm. and I just was like in bed and sick and just like lonely and just everything has felt very painful. And, mm-hmm. and you talk about the ache and sort of like the way that we are taught to avoid the ache at all times. So mm-hmm. do you mind just talking about the ache in general, but also just the ache in this moment that we are mm-hmm. experiencing collectively? Yeah, I mean, I think the ache, the way that I tried to describe it in the book is just this, <laughs> this black hole <laughs> that I have inside of myself that I'm always kind of stepping around, right? That I feel like if I don't pay attention, I could slip into. And the black hole is really just the knowing of being a human being that this all ends and that the people that I love, I'm going to lose and that everyone I know is going to die and I'm going to die. Like that is the freaking ache, right? And it's what we live with knowing and it's the black hole we try to avoid and just our incredible vulnerability, right? Our incredible vulnerability life and the incredible vulnerability of everyone we know. And I think right now, one of the things that's happening is, you know, all the pain out there is so real. I mean, I'm Rent Together Rising, so we are reading people's stories all day, and it's just unfreaking believable the levels of loss that people are facing right now. And all of that is real. And then also this double thing is going on, which is that we are all stuck in our houses, regardless of whether we are a person who's just lonely and by ourselves and bored out of our minds, or if we're a mother or father of 
five young children and we have not a moment to ourselves. We are stuck. We're in this stuckness. And what stuckness does is it's like, well, let's move metaphors. Okay, we'll go from the black hole <laughs> to like, if we're in a snow globe, okay, I think of this all the time because I had the snow globe when I was little. It's in Untamed. And our whole lives, we just spend keeping the snow globe shaken up, right? Just keep it shaken up, keep it shaken up with busyness, with food, with shopping, with snark, with whatever it takes, with our jobs, with whatever it takes to keep the snow globes of ourselves shaken because there's just like this fiery truth at the center of it, okay? And what's at the center of us is that knowing of our own vulnerability and everyone else's and that we're going to lose each other. And right now, it's like the snow has all settled, right? It's like we are out of shit to distract us. Like, it's like somebody shoved, stopped our snow globe all at once, right? We're watching the news. We know nobody's in charge, right? We know that there's no Oz behind the curtain. We know that nobody's in control, which, P.S., that's always been true. It has always been true that nobody's in control down here. It's always been true that we are incredibly vulnerable. And it's always been true that we're going to lose people we love and that all we have at the end of the day is our health and each other. But now we're just like sitting in it, right? It's like a collective, universal, global settling. That's why we are sad, right? That's why we're sad. That's why we're frustrating. We're also stuck at home with ourselves. We're just stuck with ourselves. Who the hell wants that? No one. We spend all of our lives trying to not deal with ourselves, right? And lots of us are stuck at home with our people. Christ almighty. We don't want that. I mean, I live with an ice chewer, okay? I am an ice chewer. <laughs> Mike, what did we do? What did we do to deserve this? I don't know. She's actually really cut back, but she I is. have. I got my and mineral. My, my, my mother is an ice chewer. Penelope's an ice chewer. It's genetic. Yeah. Okay. Penelope, okay. I have a glass of ice today, and Penelope's like, "Can I have a piece of ice?" She wants to stick her hand in my glass to, to grab the ice. ice. I'm like, my Shit. dog. My dog chews it now because what? he's happy doing it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's real. So what I'm saying? It's <laughs> brutal. I'm sorry. What I'm saying? I wonder me. if there's more of a club out there. I bet there Why, is. God? Why, God? <laughs> the ice chewing. Yeah. So, but really, in all seriousness, even the little cracks in our relationships that we like to avoid when we keep the snow globe, those are all sitting right looking at us. The cracks in our parenting. It's just, it's a lot right now. And it's grief, and we're in a big cocoon of grief, and that's why it hurts so much. And I think it's just supposed to hurt this much. What do you think the significance of we're in this time and your book comes out at the same time? It's weird. I don't know. I do think that it's cool that so many people are reading it right now. It's crazy how many people are reading it right now. It's cool that a book about using pain for transformation is out during a time of pain and transformation. I think that's pretty cool. Yeah. Miraculous. Mm-hmm. It's interesting, right? Yeah, I think it's, it's cool that uh, your book came out and Brene's podcast all came out. Yeah. And they, wow. you know, hers was number one for a while, bump, mm-hmm. bumped off Joe Rogan and like Brene was there. And then your book is like, yeah, it's pretty. It's, yeah. it's so beautiful. Yeah. I, I read your book a little bit earlier. Thank you so much for sending it a little bit earlier. And I read it in the middle of, a little bit of a self-created storm that I had put myself in about something political going on here in Maine where I stuck my neck out and it was very scary, but worth it. And so, it, but it was like public and there's a lot of commenting and shaming mm-hmm. and, you know, people being mean and also people being wonderful. And I am curious, like when you have, you know, you shared the story about, going public with your relationship with Abby or, you know, Mm -hmm. different moments, all the racism conversations and and Mm -hmm. your anti-racism work. And like, I'm curious, for example, there was that webinar a couple when, however long it was a couple years ago. And then Mm -hmm. you came back on and said about anti-racism work. And then you came back on and said, like, I did this wrong and, and whatever. What do you do 
with the feeling that you're going to die in those moments, or maybe you don't yes. feel that way, but I did. No, I definitely <laughs> so What do you don't. do about feeling like you're going to die? Yeah. Okay. First of all, that's the best way anyone's ever asked me that question. Cause there's usually a bunch of crap words around it, but that is how it feels. Death, dead all the time. That's it's, when she, she, okay. she's ice. I don't even have that. Okay, I got nothing except the fetal position and crying and wishing that I was never born. Okay. So for me, there's two different kinds of criticism. And one sort of criticism is like badge of honor criticism. Like this is the right people pissed off at me. Okay. This is like, so for example, anyone who was terrible about me coming out. Great. Like I'm pissing off the right people. Okay. But the kind of criticism that makes me die, makes me want to crawl into a hole and never get out is the friendly fire okay it's like it's when somebody when I've made a mistake that that it is an actual mistake that people who I respect and people who I respect are frustrated or angry with me about like that to me is just so that is a a lot of what happened during that webinar right so so what happens to me Kate is I get I usually go through a very quick cycle and and the cycle's gotten quicker for me. Okay. Before I've practiced this many times because I've screwed up so many times. Okay. (laughs) So, So I have a lot of practice and now it goes really fast. So at the very beginning, I send a lot of minutes feeling extremely sorry for myself and figuring out all the ways that actually I'm still right. And everyone else is wrong. Excellent. I spend some good time there. Okay. And even like an hour, are we talking six days? Okay. So, so let me give you, I'll just use that. I think it, I think it can last, it can last a solid day. Yeah. I'm not going to lie. Yeah. It can last a solid day. I can hang there, man. Like I've got resilience. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and you know, this is the time where I'm, I'm saying I'm making my arguments for myself. Okay. No one's in court with me. I'm by myself in my home, but I'm presenting my arguments to, you know, my 12 year old daughter, like my dog, like my, anybody who will listen about all the reasons that I am right and they are wrong. And I can tell you guys what my people's faces look like when they know I'm full of shit. Okay. When they know I'm in this space because nobody's really with me. Mm-hmm. Okay. Their faces are just kind of like humoring. Yes, mom. Right. So that's a good time that lasts for a while. And then I usually get to the grief stage, which feels like, okay, now I'm finally going to let this in. I'm going to let go of the defensiveness. I'm going to feel all of this. And that is a complete and total energy loss of my body. Mm. Like I can't move. This is when it's really bad, when it's super public, like that webinar, like when it's super public and tons of people are talking about it and I feel it's it's something that I really care about. So this is where the shame part comes in and for sure this lasts at least a day. And it also comes with some self-pity, okay? There's like a lot of, I feel so sad for myself and this is too hard and no one can do this and all the things. So this is when my family would react with like, love and care like this is where abby will tell me that everything's going to be okay and that we're going to make it through this and all the things and then there's always always 100 percent of the time arising okay at some point i remember that i'm a human being who is very brave and keeps showing up and trying over and over and over again. And the reason that this is so hard is that it is hard to be vulnerable and hard to make mistakes and hard to be criticized. And that is why so few people are brave enough to do it. Right. And I also remember that what is much more inspiring than never showing up and never making mistakes is showing up, making mistakes and apologizing correctly and trying again. That is what I respect in other people. I have found that the power of a good apology Mm. can never be underestimated. Like they should teach apology classes everywhere. Like I cannot believe that I had to learn every single freaking, you know, column from ancient Greece in eighth grade, but I never learned how to apologize. Thanks. Yeah. You know, Ionic and Corinthian. And that's coming in handy. Yeah. (laughs) 
thanks. Yeah. I don't know how to grieve or like love or, you know, but thanks. I also know a lot about ancient Egypt, if you need to know. <laughs> so I do feel that so few people know how to apologize well, that when people hear and feel an actual, all-encompassing, no excuses, vulnerable apology, it blows their damn minds. So I remember that. I remember that going through that whole process gets me to a place where I actually am ready to apologize. Right. And, and I just try to remember that if you're going to be a person who uses their voice in this world, that comes with great responsibility. And part of that responsibility is knowing what criticism you actually do owe the world to take in. Because especially when you're a woman, you know, 90% of it is horseshit, right? Like 30% of it's about the way you look all the time. 30% of it is about your relationships, right? The world knows that women identify themselves by their roles in their relationships. So they think they can take you out by calling you a bad wife, a bad employer, a bad mom, whatever it is. 20% of it will be about your personality, right? And so far, none of that has been about your work. Right? That's all about you as a person because most of the time when a man puts his work out in the world, the world tends to ask, is this man's work worthy? But when a woman puts work out into the world, the world tends to ask, is this woman worthy of putting out work? Mm-hmm. Right? So all of the criticism that women receive, it doesn't even get to our work. It's all about us. Right? I mean, Kate, for sure, 95% of the criticism that I receive has to do with my looks, my relationships, my personality. They don't even get to my writing half the time, right? So my point is, in order to survive being a woman who uses your voice in any capacity, big or small, it becomes imperative to know how to sort your criticism, right? How to, you have to be wise enough to know how to disregard 90% of it. And you have to be brave enough to bring the 10% that is about your work that is given to you respectfully and not cruelly. You have to be brave enough to bring that in and let it make you better. So good. Thank you. Great answer. Love that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. You, okay. Cause I've got my thing. No, I know that. I, this, I, is, this is a, and you know, I won't let you ask any questions unless you get in. Okay. <laughs> no, I, uh, I'm aware. That's what I, we're here for you. The, Thank you. Your book. We're arrived. actually here for Glennon. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I'm here for Kate. Yeah. Great. <laughs> your book arrived. It was a gold envelope, right? I, is, that, yeah. is that what it was? No. Yeah, it was gold. So yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And it arrived and I w- it was on her desk and I go in, I'm like, oh, this is, this, who, what is this? And she says, like, she's like, don't touch that. And like, she's like, that's Glennon's new book. And I was like, oh, can I see it? And she goes, no, don't touch it. Just, you can't touch the book. So after <laughs> she finishes the book, this was like two weeks later, she brings it to me. She goes, okay, now you can read it. You know, and it was just she's Aww. like, oh, that's fine. well, you know how I, it is. I, I like, it. it's like in a house with small children and a husband. Like, people take your stuff. Totally, <laughs> and yeah. this totally. one was really totally. special. Like, yeah. of course, you can, you know, pick up books, other books, just not this one. Done with it. Okay, so. Let's talk about this question in the book that you asked. There were two of them in different sections, but one was in regards to like the things that we hear, whether it's from the church, the government, the media, mm-hmm. our dad, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. And the question was, who benefits from me believing this? Mm-hmm. Who benefits from me believing this? And I'm wondering, like, you know, I can't help but ask a timely question in terms of like globally, and I don't expect you to like commentate on global politics or economics or whatever, like we're not going to need to go down the rabbit hole, but I am just curious, like with that question and then the other question, what institution or person is benefiting from your suffering? Mm-hmm. What do you think is being uncovered in terms of those two questions? Just like that you guys are talking about at your house. Yeah. Well, just to describe what we're talking about. Yeah. Let's take, you know, my untaming of my faith. Okay. So what I learned 
as a young mom, I started going to this church. They sent a postcard that said they had free daycare and coffee. So that's why I went, not to find Jesus, to find a freaking babysitter. So you <laughs> weren't raised there. particularly... I was raised Catholic. Catholic, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so... That makes sense about the heavy metal. Right, right. <laughs> Very good. Yes. Excellent. Mike was also raised Catholic. Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, I don't know. I always had this thing inside me that was just, I don't know what it is. It's just a spark of like, whatever the question is about God, like my answer is yes. I don't know what the question is. Okay. I just believe in some kind of magic. And I went to this church and I'm also a huge reader. I'm obsessed with reading, as you know. So I've read the Bible several times. Okay. I'm obsessed with religious texts. I love, I love religious texts. That's why I named my blog monastery because I was so into monastic traditions back then. So, so I was so shocked. Like the third service I went to in church and this minister started talking about gay people and abortion. It was like he was speaking of it as if he was hanging the entire congregation upon these two issues. And I was so baffled by it because I've read the Bible several times. I know that Jesus never mentioned either one. Right. So I go to talk to him. I ask for an appointment. I go to speak to him. I bring my concerns and my questions and my confusions and my ideas about, you know, what might actually be emphasized by Jesus in the Bible, you know, like ending war and ending poverty and serving widows and orphans and all of these things and ask questions about why then if God, if Jesus was so adamant about these things, are you focused on these things? And what I learned during that conversation and during several conversations subsequent with other religious leaders in my town, because this turned into like an obsession for me, is that they don't freaking know. Okay. They got a memo. There's a chapter in the book about how this actually happened. But the reason why many Christian denominations hang their hats on abortion and gayness is because if you are a group of very wealthy, white, outwardly straight men, you've got to pick two issues that isn't going to require you to give up any of your money, power, or change anything about your own lifestyle. Okay. So, and these are sweeping statements that I'm going to, that I'm making, but I wrote the whole entire, how this all went down in the book. So the question then becomes, so they passed this memo down and said, this is how you're going to be real Christians is if you believe in these two things and then nothing else matters. So I figured this out. I talked to the guy about it. He says, the minister about it. He says, I'll never forget it. He looked at me and he says, you seem like a very smart woman, but don't forget the heart is wicked and you cannot rely on your own understanding. Okay. This is the basis of much of religion, Right. It is very important in order to control people to make sure that people do not trust themselves. Okay. That's why all the stories from the beginning are you're bad. Everybody's wicked. Everything's evil. Whatever you do, you can't trust yourself. And with women, it's doubled down. Okay. The first story I ever learned was about women was okay. God and Adam, they were in this amazing garden and everything was awesome. Well, it was just the bros. But then this bitch, Eve, comes, and she wants more, and then all hell breaks loose. She trusted herself, right? And that unleashed all suffering on the earth. So what's fascinating to me is your question, who is served by me not trusting myself? Anybody who is in control in that institution, because they can get me to do anything. If I am looking at them and their motives instead of my own, And every time I have a gut instinct where I'm like, that doesn't feel right. That feels cruel. I am told, yeah, you might feel that way, but you can't trust yourself. You can't just, that's God's ways are different. God's ways are different. As if God is out there somewhere instead of God as the truest, deepest, most tender parts of ourselves. The God in us is the one saying, no, not that. Right. But if they can get us to mistrust that we will do anything. We will vote any way. We will go to any war. We will give them all of our money, right? So in that way, I know that people can find God in churches and in religion. Mm -hmm. 
it's possible. I think that if you are part of an institution that teaches you not to trust yourself, it's extremely difficult, right? Because for me, faith means being aligned deeply with the truest, most beautiful part of myself that I believe is God. Okay. So that's why I think that Jesus said, kept saying, I and the father are one. I and the father are one. I and the father are one. I don't think that in my mind, I'm not sure he mentioned, he he meant I am God more than you. I think that he meant I am God as we all are when we are aligned with that divine part of ourselves. Right. So in so much that religion is a place that teaches us not to trust that deepest part of ourselves, I find religion to be the hardest place to find God, if that makes sense. Mm, totally. Anybody who asks us to give up our goodness, who asks us to give up our intuition, who asks us to give up our common sense and our wisdom to pledge allegiance to something else, like religion, like our political parties, like all that's going on, we will always lose our way. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. It's so like, just that core question, who's benefiting from me believing this? Mm -hmm. If that belief doesn't feel good. Right. We'll think about like, better word. (laughs) we're taught, I mean, let's just look at the, you know, the beauty industry. Like we're taught from, from when we're little to feel like crap about ourselves, right? That we should constantly be losing this weight, gaining this weight, using, like whatever we're supposed to be doing, having these new genes, you know, making our foreheads straighter than they are, like whatever we're supposed to be doing in the freaking moment, right? We feel like crap all the time about ourselves. Who benefits from that? That's planted. That's not an accident. Women aren't born hating themselves. No, I mean, trained to hate ourselves. It's fascinating raising two little girls and just witnessing how much they love themselves. Yes. You know, they're four and a half and two and they just, they just think they are the shit and they are. Mm -hmm. And it's just like so beautiful, you know, to watch that and just be like, how long can we preserve this? 10. I mean, between, between eight and 12 are when little girls and little boys start to internalize their social conditioning, right? So that's when girls start learning. What's 10? Well, it just depends on what, I mean, where you are. When I was 10, I guess I was in fifth grade. Is that about right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Like that. Yeah. Yeah. So, and that's, you know, when social scientists would tell us, and, and it rings true to me, that's where I lost myself. That's where most of my friends would say they started to lose themselves. And we can fight it with our kids, but you do have to be able to see it. You have to be able to see it. You have to be able to see the lies that come at you from our culture, that come at us from marketers who have all been tasked with the job of sitting around at big tables in meeting rooms and figuring out how to make us feel less than because women who feel less than will buy more, always, forevermore, right? So messages all day every day to try to make us feel like we're not good enough is an excellent way to run an economy right it's just a shitty way to live a life right because you can never we will always stay on that hamster wheel because we can never get enough of what we don't really need yeah. right that's why it never makes us feel good no matter what we do so it's just a freaking revolution just to decide that you're okay like, yeah whoa like that could stop economies <laughs> Just like a bunch of women who are like, actually, we're good. We're good. You know? Oh, my God. That would be so amazing. I mean, I do think it's happening happening. in Mm -hmm. In small ways that will continue to balloon. Mm-hmm. You know, even what? just like Alicia Keys deciding not to wear makeup and then, or like whenever she feels yeah. like it or doesn't, I mean, that's, she can, whatever. I think she's amazing regardless. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Me too. I'm that's right. Like, I mean, hello. Yeah. <laughs> but all those things, like they do make a huge difference. And I think about just even the difference between now and, and 10 years ago. And even like, just, you know, I know we have so far to go and I know Mm -hmm. there's so much work to be done. And like Mike and I are watching season one of transparent right now. Oh yeah. We're behind. (laughs) Um, And it came out in 2012. Mm-hmm. And it's really interesting how, even though I know we are not, we weren't having a conversation about gender expression, but like still we're, you know, how 
certain things that are in that show just in season one from eight years ago are like, really, they wouldn't be in a show now. Like, Isn't it really amazing? Yeah. It shows how fast yes. progress is happening. Yeah. Yes. A long way. Yes. So I mean, listen, fascinating. have you watched, I'm, I'm rewatching Friends with my kids. Oh. You guys, I'm embarrassed. Like with my kids are like, you, what are they saying? Like the homophobia that's in yes. it, the like the body stuff, like the fat I'm jokes. The, yeah. Wow. Oh, really? My kids are like, mom. And I try to explain, okay, you guys, I swear this wasn't like we, we were. <laughs> we didn't know. We didn't know. But it's hopeful. It like, is hopeful. It, it proves so progress. Hopeful. Yeah. yeah. Like, well, I remember, you know, growing up, I would watch like Sex in the City, right? Mm-hmm. With my girlfriends. And my. I love Sex in the City. I know. So good. My mother would come in and like pause it and have conversations with us about the patriarchy. And <laughs> so <laughs> she was cool before cool. Was cool. She was very like, she was like, you can watch this, but we will discuss it. And so like, I just feel like that is cause I was going to ask you, you know, given the conversation about beauty and women's bodies and, and when, at your last Omega workshop that I was at with Meg, you know, you talked a lot about body or like we talked a lot about mm-hmm. body, right? And yeah. you and Abby had just shared that that's like, you know, still an ongoing chewing on issue for both yes, of you it as is. it is for me, obviously, and probably every other woman on the planet. But like when you saw your daughters maybe between eight and 12 lose themselves somewhere, mm-hmm. what do you I, continue to do? Other what than we do is talk ceaselessly. I mean, <laughs> We talk ceaselessly. I mean, listen, we, these poor children are being raised by, in this house, by two women who are fierce feminists and who are spiritual seekers and who are sober. So we have nothing else to do than talk each other and our children to death. Okay. And I am obsessed with, so Abby calls me a lie detector, like a, like a lie detector machine, because I am physically unable to see bullshit coming out of my TV and not comment on it and not like, I just, I feel like if you know, if you're a blind consumer of messages, you just start swallowing it, right? You just don't even know. It's like, you think it's just, it's the air you breathe. So you can't see it for what it is and it gets in you. It's like that, like all the water in the world can't sink a ship unless it gets inside. Like, that's how I feel about those messages. I didn't have the skills that I needed when I was little to figure all of that out. So I just breathed it all in. It made me really sick. I became bulimic when I was 10. And so with our girls all the time, we're saying, what are they trying to tell you about what it means to be a woman? Like, Oh, what do you think that that message is saying about women's bodies? What do you think? You know? And so they are suspicious, right? They walk through their lives suspicious and a little pissed. (laughs) And that's what I want, right? I, I seriously believe that in a profoundly misogynistic society, little girls either get sick or they get pissed, right? So I'm trying to raise pissed girls. Now, I did remember a few years ago that I also have a son, <laughs> okay? <laughs> and this was shocking to me, okay? Because... In all seriousness, I have been raising my little girls since they were little, little. You know, you can be angry and bossy and loud and still be a girl. But I haven't been telling my son since he was teeny, teeny. You can be vulnerable and you can be uncertain and you can be gentle and still be a boy, right? So I started playing catch up with him. And, you know, I think that I feel strongly now that one of the best things we can do for all of our kids, girls and boys, is to really interrupt the cycle of creating this toxic manhood that makes boys have to swallow all of their humanity and um, is, I think, at least as strong of a cage for them as, it, as little girls have for themselves. You know, mm-hmm. I think, you know, talk about who benefits from that. I think that most of our problems right now, including the threatening of the ending of our planet, have to do with a lot to do with this idea of 
toxic masculinity we have that the only way for a man to prove his worth is through power and richness and certainty and invulnerability and gaining and amassing wealth at all costs. So I really do think that breaking that cage, like starting to figure out how to look at a baby and not even care about the gender, right? Just think, how do we raise this being so that that this being gets to experience and has permission to express all the qualities of being a human being? Because we know that personality traits are not gendered, right? It's just that expression of certain personality traits are gendered, right? So we have all of the feelings and all of the experiences. Just like girls are only allowed to express these and boys are only allowed to express those. And then that's why things come out sideways, right? So I think we just, Kate, to answer your question, what we do is we just keep, keep, keep pointing them towards the lies, right? So they can see them so that they say there's something wrong with that, not there's something wrong with me. And just keep, you know, fostering the permission for them to be everything all at once. What is, so we've talked about a lot about losing yourself in these conversation about, you know, the media, whether it's ads, magazines, whatever. Is there a, a system, right? Like I think mm-hmm. it's systems. What's your process? Yeah. What's your process <laughs> for teaching people this to mm-hmm. note it? Like people might be listening here because we've talked a lot on this podcast about sobriety. You know, I've been sober for eight years, mm. eight basically our whole life. I just um, don't drink. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so like right now we're at a time where alcohol sales are through the roof, mm, right? Mm-hmm. Today we're doing this on 420, you know, everybody's mm-hmm. celebrating their medical, you know, now it's changed. It used to be weed. Now it's not anymore. It's a medical medicinal plant. Um, you know, we came up with a new name for it. So it sounds better. Mm-hmm. So it's like, how do we, like, what's some, somebody could be sitting at home listening to this, be like, am I losing my, like, have I lost myself? What kind of awareness can I have in my daily life to be like, oh, I'm losing myself? Mm, that's good. That's good. Well, I think if we've lost the ability, I think there's three things that I think of when I think of who I am. Okay. When we say, if we're losing ourselves, what is that self that we're trying to get back to? Right. I know that. Many of us lose ourselves when we lose the ability to feel, okay? That being able to experience and withstand and stay with yourself through the whole gamut of human emotion is part of not losing yourself. For example, alcohol is going through the roof. I don't have a lot of judgments about alcohol because whatever, but I do know that if alcohol is being used because we can't sit with our feelings, mm-hmm. then that is a loss of self, right? Because we need to, with, when you think about a friend, like if a friend were in pain, a friend was in pain or, or afraid, and, and they expressed it to us, they said, I'm in pain, I'm afraid, and we said, peace out. I, I can't stay with you in that. We would never do that to a friend, right? But we do it to ourselves all the time, right? I feel uncomfortable, I feel the hot loneliness of being human, peace out. Like, abandon myself with whatever it is we grab, whether it's booze or, Everybody has a different thing. Yeah, different. Most of it's most of us for now. It's scroll, 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 scroll. Right? That's an abandonment of self over and over and over again. You know. So that's what early sobriety was for me. Just actual trying to feel again and trying to feel even painful feelings without abandoning myself, without running. That's one thing. Is are you able to feel your feelings without abandoning yourself? And I think another one is: Are you able to be still? Are you able to? Look for wisdom, not just outside of yourself, but inside of yourself. Okay. I think that people who are in touch with themselves, every single one of them that I know that I feel like are really have a self that they know and trust are people who look inward for the most important part decisions of their lives. Not for everything. Like if I need a new throw pillow, I'm definitely calling my sister. I don't know shit about that stuff. Okay. But like, if I'm making huge decisions about my family, my future, my career, I have a self that I depend on for that. Okay. I know how to shut out all the other voices, stop asking for permission and consensus and approval 
and go inward and feel for that knowing. And everybody calls it something different. Some people call it God. Some people call it spirit, intuition, whatever. It's that thing inside of you that points you towards the next right thing. And some people know how to connect with it and some people don't. Okay. And then the third thing that I would say is I think that people who are in close touch with themselves, who know themselves and trust themselves, depend on imagination. All right. I think that there is, I don't know what it is. I don't know how to describe it. It's just like a wild field inside of us that just like has these crazy dreams and crazy ideas and stuff that we kind of dream up inside of us that doesn't make sense to anybody else on the outside. And some people trust that, you know, some people, I've really come to think, to believe that our imagination is not necessarily where we go to escape reality, but it's actually where we go to discover the truest reality, right? That was meant for us, that we were meant to give birth to, that we were meant to bring forth, that we were meant, whether, I mean, because we all are here to create something new, you know, whether it's like a new idea or a new piece of art or a child or a new community or whatever it is, we're here for a reason. And that's to bring forth something new. And this imagination place that's inside of us is where we go to like, figure out what that is. Right. But it takes such selfhood to be able to do that because it's usually something that is no one's seen before. Right. And that won't make sense to everybody else. And so you really have to have a selfhood to find that invisible place inside of you and trust it and, and build on it. You know, do you know how to feel? Do you know how to be still and know? Do you depend on your imagination? I think that's the perfect place to say like, that just is so good. <laughs> well, I just feel like ever since, I don't remember how I started reading your stuff, Glennon, but like ever since I did, I just, I don't know. You're just so helpful to me. <laughs> so no, I that's, There's nothing better you can say. That's so great. You are also helpful to me, Kate. Well, I you. love that. I just, I, I want to be helpful. Thank you. Because <laughs> all I've got is these words, words, words. Here's some more words. I'm so glad these words are helpful. They are deeply yeah. helpful to me. I just, they really are. Well, there's a, I mean, because I live with you and I read your book and that part on sobriety about the emotions stuff was, it, it was like, oh, that's what it is. You know, it really connected <laughs> with me around that. Mm. For those of you that have not read the book, just read the book. Definitely. But, but there's similarities between the two of you, like with mm. your writing and your style and the way you yeah, feel agreed. like, just like there's an attraction to Glennon from what I've seen is because that's you as well. You know, it's For like sure. friends, you. you know, I really appreciate and, that. Uh, yeah. Oh, I just appreciate you. Thank you for writing this book. Thank you for being who you are. And yeah. This is, was just wonderful. Thanks for coming on our so podcast. It was so wonderful. I'm, I'm sad for myself that the kids didn't wake up and come down, but I'm happy for you. Thank you. <laughs> we told Penelope at bedtime, we had like a little Penelope sandwich between the two of us. And we were both lying there, which doesn't happen very often. And I said, honey, I need to tell you something. Tonight, you need to stay in bed because yeah. mommy and daddy have a very important call. And she was like, how long will you be on that call? It was like, way past your bedtime yeah don't try don't try sister Stay in don't bed. Try. and she and she said okay mama which yeah. is so anyway she came penelope. through penelope came through so thank you glennon and i love you yeah thank you i love you guys so much hang in there stay safe you too bye, bye. so there you have it glennon doyle our cozy evening chat so again if you like this episode, for sure, make sure you subscribe to the show, but also go follow Glennon. She's on Instagram at Glennon Doyle. Go please consider contributing to Together Rising. Join us on Team Love and become a monthly contributor to Together Rising. They do just such incredible work. And of course, get yourself a copy of Untamed. And please, if you love this episode, share a screenshot. Tag us. Let us know you're listening in. And uh, we're just sending you a lot of love. Make sure you subscribe. That's it. Thanks. 
what if you could get more done in less time, but more importantly, feel more calm, peaceful, and at ease. You can, and my book, Do Less, is out in a newly revised paperback format with 14 experiments to implement right away. You can get it over at katenorthrup.com forward slash book, along with some incredible bonuses, including a masterclass on manifesting with New York Times bestseller, Dr. Shafali Sabari and me. So head over to katenorthrup.com forward slash book, get your copy of Do Less and your incredible bonuses now.